Okay, we're going to jump into our lesson. Let me put this on real quick. Just for everyone watching at home and on the recording. We are uh, doing this series, and it is called Mystery, and it is a look at Ephesians. And Tom did an amazing job last week of kind of doing the overview of the book and giving us some uh, historical and cultural context so that we kind of understand. I loved that he started in Acts, because that's where the story of the Ephesian church starts, goes to the, the letter of Ephesians, talks about Timothy, and then goes all the way to Revelation. Because Jesus actually writes this church a letter in the book of Revelation. So we're going to now start marching our way through this book, this letter. And we're going to start in chapter 1. And first I was like, yeah, we'll do a Sunday on chapter 1. We'll do a Sunday on chapter 2. But chapter 1 is so rich. And so much stuff is there that this is really just the first half of chapter 1. We're going to do, like, we're just going to look at 14 verses this morning. But I'm also going to give some some more context. So chapter 1, part 1, this one is called In Christ. I want to start with, so the title of the series is Mystery. And I, part of that is because the word mystery is used in this letter a lot, more than any of other, Paul's other letters. And this isn't a very long letter. It's not anywhere near as long as Romans or 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But he talks about mystery. Well, I want to talk about that. Why? why? Why is he doing this? And the Greek word is mysterion. It's not that hard. But without this information, we're missing something when we read the book of Ephesians. We're missing something when we read a lot of Paul's letters. But the idea of mystery faiths or mystery religions was prominent back then. And so I have a quote from a, uh, an encyclopedia on uh, world religions. The term mystery religions generally refers to certain religions of the ancient worlds of Greece and Rome. They were practiced alongside the official public worship of the state and were often more popular than civic religions. Mystery religions focused on the search for eternal life. Members believed that by the means of the performance of secret rituals, they would gain knowledge not available to the uninitiated and thus effect a mystical union with the divine. And so in almost every major religion, there was like an offshoot, a branch that spun it off into the mystery religion vein. And so for the worship of any of the Greek or Roman gods, there was also another like parallel religion that was that, that, that same thing, but mystery religion. And what that meant was there were people that were like, they're like we're not going to do what everyone else is doing. We know secret stuff, stuff that you don't know. And so we like to run off into the woods and do our own thing. And at night, and we practice rituals that you don't know about. And we have a closer relationship with Artemis or Zeus or Aphrodite or whoever. Like, we know more than you. We do things that you don't know about. Mystery religion. And it is no surprise that the exact same thing started happening with Christianity. And, and 
there were disciples in the first century that were like, yeah, I mean, the way of Jesus is cool and all, but what if we did extra special stuff that made us cooler than you? What if we did secret stuff that gave us secret knowledge that you didn't know about? What if we knew more than you? And so, why is the word mystery in Paul's letters? It's because Paul was always pushing back against this in the first century church. He was regularly saying, that's not the way we do things. And that's not the way God is doing things, and it's not the way Jesus is doing things. And so here's an example. When Paul uses the word mystery in the New Testament, whenever you're reading the New Testament and you come across the word mystery, I also want you to look for two other things. Some reference to Jesus or God, and the verb or the action of revelation, or being revealed, or being made known. And here are some examples. In Romans 16... The message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery. Hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 2.7 No, we declare God's wisdom. A mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Here's one more. Ephesians 1 in the verse that we're going to be looking at today. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Paul regularly is like, I get it. There's this temptation to create something more secret, more mystical, more special than the plain truths that have already been revealed to you. But I'm going to keep reminding you, that's not how it is. There was a mystery that God held in humanity until Jesus, but then he revealed it, and we have it. We don't need to go looking for new mysteries. And guys, this is still, this is still in our hearts today. There is this, there's this feeling. It's like, man, when I know stuff that no one else knows, I feel more special. I think this is one of the problems. We did a lesson two years ago now where we talked about like uh, wrestling, it was a midweek Zoom lesson, but wrestling with like all the conspiracy theories in the world. And it's this idea of like, hey you, everybody else, they don't know anything. But if you listen to me, you'll be special. Because now we'll know more than everybody else. And that's a drug and we want that. And we're like, yeah, I want to be in on the, I want to be better than everyone. It's, no, it's nothing that is new. It's been around since thousands of years ago. Here, so what is the mystery that has been revealed? Here are two sentences that sum up almost every aspect of Christianity. Okay, The first one is, Jesus died for me. Very simple, and yet loaded with months worth of theological like riches in here. What does it mean that Jesus died? Lots of people die. Everybody dies. Why is his death more special? Oh, well that's because he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the sacrificial lamb. He has glory. There is eternity and power and majesty behind that name. Okay, but if those are true, 
then why in the world would he die for me? If he's the son of God in majesty and royalty and glory, why would he care about me? Because you've just opened the door into the nature of God's heart that he loves you. Love, humility, atonement, reuniting a fallen humanity with a loving father. There's a lot in, that, in those four words. And then, Jesus is Lord of my life. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my master. I am a slave. Jesus is king. I am a subject. I do not act according to my own will. Everything I do is in submission to the will of my master. I cannot continue to live the way that I have lived. My life has to change. If it doesn't change, what does that mean? If I say with my mouth, Jesus is Lord of my life, but then nothing changes, what does that mean? It means those empty words. It means I'm rejecting lordship. It means I'm refusing to allow the Holy Spirit to do the work in my heart, in my life, and I'm still ruled by my flesh. But if Jesus is truly Lord of my life, then everyone will see the difference between the old me and the new me. That's Christianity. Those two sentences. Almost everything we do, almost everything we think, almost every part of theology and worship and can be connected back to these two things. And so here's my, my first question. Do I embrace the simplicity of the Christian life? In a world where Paul was writing this, there were people maybe that he actually helped become Christians that were now saying, but that's boring. I need more. And he's like, no. The mystery has been made known to us. We already know it. You don't need to go make up new mysteries. Can I embrace the simplicity of the Christian life? Spend some time just think, thinking, of, meditating on those two sentences. Jesus died for me. And Jesus is Lord of my life. And maybe ask yourself, like even for our young people, like do I even believe that? Do I believe that Jesus died for me? Even for us old people, is Jesus Lord of your life? That's not something you just say once and then go on acting like everything's fine. That is a declaration we make in our heart every day. So I'm putting this out there. The Christian life is not that complicated, guys. It's simple. Now, does that mean it's easy? No. It's not always easy, but it's simple. Well then, then why do I feel like life is a mystery? And maybe when you heard the, the, like the topic or the, the title, mystery, you're like, yes, that resonates with me because life is crazy. And I want someone to say, it's okay, life is crazy. Why do I feel like life doesn't make any sense? If, if it is so simple, why is it so hard? Well, I've boiled that down to these two questions that I think we wrestle with a lot. Who am I and what is my path forward? A lot of people, I, I even have my own story of an identity crisis I had in my 20s. My family, we moved around a lot like every year growing up. And then 
I planted myself in, in Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti, next to this beautiful girl, who I was like, man, I want to be around her now. My family moved on, went to California, and I, like, didn't know who I was. I was like, who am I? Every time I move, I had the opportunity to reinvent myself. I'd be like, okay, eighth grade, who am I? Who's the eighth grade Ben going to be? Who's the ninth grade Ben going to be? And I got to just make him up. And there were some times, guys, where the shifts were radical and sloppy and very awkward. <laughs> where I was like, I'm going to be the bad boy, and I'm going to wear a jean jacket, and I'm going to like, and I'm like, I look back and I'm like, you didn't need to do that. <laughs> you were the nerd theater kid. Like, you could have embraced that. But these two questions, I think, are very important. And maybe, and then, it, oh, after you even wrestle with who am I, like, well, then what? Like, how am I supposed to live? What's the path? Can we make the path understandable? So that what, what I'm doing, I feel like this is right. Guys, what's awesome about the book of Ephesians is that these are covered. Like, the first three, the first half of Ephesians is really helping us understand who we are and our identity as Christians. And then the second half is, like, how do we live? And that's what we're going we're gonna to wrestle with. I want to take a slight detour. And I'm so sorry if this is just total Bible nerd language for you guys. I want to talk about you and us. Because in this first half of the book of Ephesians, Paul is clearly saying, he says you, and then he says us, 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 and then he says you. And I wrote a sentence that I'm going to try to, uh, to use to explain this, okay? Here's the sentence I wrote. It's no secret that we have a distinct culture here in West Michigan. I've only lived here a few years, and I see how you work, live, and think differently than our friends on the east side. When we go visit Detroit, they can already tell that we are becoming Grand Rapidians. I love our West Michigan culture, but I also know that we have to work hard to live out kingdom culture. It's a great... It's a, it's a great sentence, right? You read this as native English speakers, not all of us are English as first language, but as, as native English Bible readers, we read this and it, and it makes sense to us. Now, there's a trick though. There's something sneaky in here that I did. And that's I used the us and the we to mean two different things. It's no secret that we have a distinct culture, and I'm talking about everybody in here. But when I say, when we go visit Detroit, I'm really just talking about me and Jen. And you all, made the, you all connected those dots. You didn't wrestle with it. You didn't be like, hold on a second. Who are you talking about when you said this we versus this we? Does that make sense? And our context, because we know the context of the communication, it's easy for us to switch like that. It's tricky, though, when we're reading the Bible. Now, here's the us and the we scriptures in this first half. Is that coming across? The us and the we. Grace, grace and peace to you, is what he says. Maybe not. Grace and peace to you. Is how he starts the, the letter. And then... For the rest of the letter, until the very end, he uses us and we language. And it's beautiful, 
And I'm not saying any of it is wrong. And then at the very end, he jumps back to, and you also. Now, here's, what I, here's why I'm bringing this up. I feel like this is just, I want you to trust the way I handle the scriptures. And I also want us to, to, to be careful. Because in these few verses is where we get a lot of the doctrine of things like predestination. Because it literally says we have been predestined. But I need us to understand that most theologians and Bible scholars, they would agree that there is a switch. That he's talking to you, and then when he talks about us and we, sometimes he's talking about us and we, all Christians. But sometimes he's talking about a a different group of people. And so some people, and and, and the theologians are not 100% in agreement on this. Sometimes he thinks, when he's talking about uh, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. That's everybody. That's all, that's all Christians. That's everybody. In him we have redemption through his blood. That's everybody. It's these other ones we have to be careful of. In him he predestined us for adoption. He made known to us the mystery. In him we were also those who have been chosen. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ. And then he jumps back and says, and you too were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. So I'm just saying, most people think there's two camps. One is, he's talking about we, the Jews. We were predestined to know about this stuff before you. We were made known the mystery before you. The other camp is that it might be the apostles and the first-gen Christians. That we in Jerusalem, at, at, you know, that were there on Pentecost, we knew this stuff. We were chosen to be there and then bring it to you. And then he wraps it all up and says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. I just wanted to take a couple minutes just to say, we have to be careful when we take a few scriptures like this and develop an entire theological basis around them when it might not be the case. And I want you to trust that when we are presenting you the scriptures, that we take care with what we're saying. Does that make sense? All right. Here's the meat in Christ. Throughout the Bible, there are several instances where the positional statements of us and Jesus kind of like flip-flop. Famous one is Revelation, where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Like, let me in and I'll dine with you. It's this idea of Jesus coming in to us. Beautiful scripture. There's several scriptures where it talks about Jesus in us, but when you read those in context, most of them have to do with the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's pretty clear they're using Jesus, Christ, and the Spirit together. The Spirit of Christ. And, and so, but it's talking about that being in us. Guys, this first part of Ephesians is shocking in how clearly Paul says over and over again, the position between you and Jesus is that you are in him. And he never flips it. He never talks about anything else. It's very straightforward. And, I, and I'm going to put those 
those uh, four instances up on the screen. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Four times in a very short span, Paul is, is saying the position between you and Jesus is that you are in him. Things are done in him. Really appreciated Tom last week. He talked a little bit about his spiritual background. And one of the things he said was that, like, in, in his teens, like, he went to several churches and they were like, here's a prayer and invite Jesus into your heart. He's like, and I did it. Every, every Sunday I went to church and prayed Jesus into my heart and nothing ever happened. Nothing changed in my life. And I think about that a lot because it's very easy to preach a gospel of you stay who you are and just invite Jesus to come and hang out with you. But remember our our two sentences. Jesus died for me and Jesus is Lord of my life. This idea of, I'm going to stay me. But I would love it if Jesus would come and like help me out from time to time. That is, that is the perfect picture of you not having to make Jesus Lord of your life. A while back we talked about, uh, I think we were doing the series called The Villain. And one of them was The, the Self. The worst villain in the Bible is us in our own lives. And we use the example of the three throne rooms. The first throne room is where I am on the throne and the entire world is at my feet. I can do whatever I want. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. And this is this is a, a, a very worldly mindset. This is where you're like, if it feels good, I'm going to do it. Whatever I decide to do, that's what gets done. I don't answer to anyone. And I don't, I'm not going to feel guilty about it. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. I'm on the throne. The whole world is at my feet. The second throne room is where you are on the throne and you invite Jesus to come in and be your trusted advisor. And so now Jesus is standing over your shoulder, helping you make your decisions. And you're like, Jesus, what should I do in this situation? And he's like, here's what you should do. And then you, as the king on the throne, makes a decision. Do I do that? Do I do that? This is the perfect picture of religiousness. You have Jesus come in and help you out. Advise you, help you make decisions. But you're still on the throne. The third throne room is where you get off the throne. And you ask Jesus to sit on the throne. And you bow in submission at his feet. 
And you live the rest of your life in lordship. And you don't ask him to give you advice. You ask him to give you commands as your lord. And you're like, that doesn't sound very fun. But that is what we wrestle with when we're... That's why I said it's simple, but it's not easy. Because it requires you dying to yourself. It requires you getting off the throne. Stop thinking that you're in charge of every aspect of your life. Here's here's a couple questions. Do I want to be in Christ? What does that mean? It means Christ is the destination. Christ is the environment. Christ is the oxygen that we're going to breathe. And I am going to sacrifice and leave everything to go and be in that. I'm going to grow the way that he wants me to grow. I'm going to behave the way he wants me to behave. I'm going to, everything is going to come from Christ's influence in my life. Because he's not in me, I am in him. Do I want to be in Christ? And what do you have to sacrifice so that you can be in Christ? That's, that is a scary question. And it's going to be different for all of us. What is it that I need to sacrifice, that I need to let go of, that I need to lay down? Maybe it's a hold on some part of your identity. This is who I am. I worked hard for this status or these credentials or my reputation or my, all these things that make me feel like I'm important. And Jesus is like, yeah, you've got to leave all that behind if you want to be in me. Or maybe it's a relationship that you're like, this defines me. This person completes me. And Jesus is like, maybe that's not good. But what is it going to take for you to stop being the you on the throne? What is it going to take for you to get off the throne and ask Jesus to get on the throne? My, my follow-up question, though, is do I want something with less sacrifice? Do I want to be in Christ Or is there some other version of modern Christianity where I can just settle for a good religiousness? Where I can just add Jesus to my life. I don't need to die to myself. I don't need to end this. I just get to me plus Jesus. That sounds like a winning combo, right? Jesus is like, no, because it's still you. Do I want to be in Christ or do I want something with less sacrifice? And so as we continue going through these things, the first first half is going to be all about this. Our position to Jesus, our understanding who we are in Jesus, really accepting all that Jesus has done for us. And we're going to want, sometimes we're going to be tempted to skip. Like, okay, just give me the practicals. Like, what do I do? And I'm just going to say, I'm just going to ask you, hold on. Let's get through this stuff and get this stuff solidly rooted in our hearts, and then we'll talk about that. And I guarantee you, once we talk about that, you're going to be like, I think I like that other stuff better. I like, I like being told how awesome I am. I don't like being told what to do. 
And that's going to be the common temptation once we get to the second half of Ephesians. But I wanted to start here. Guys, the gospel message is simple. Even when we think there's got to be more to it. I want something like fancier. Nope, it's simple. Jesus died for you, and that includes a lot of amazing truths in it. Jesus is now Lord of my life. If he's not Lord of my life, You can still be grateful that he died for you, but that's not what his desire for his followers was. And I I don't want a church of people that are like really happy about Jesus, but refuse to make him Lord of their life. I also want us to be careful how we handle the Bible. That was just a a quick little Bible nerd sidetrack there. But man, we can read stuff and then spin off entire like doctrines based on things that we need to be able to handle a lot more responsibly. Amen? And then lastly, it's just this question. And this is the question that should be like on our minds when we go to bed and on our minds when we wake up. Do I want to be in Christ? Do I want my identity defined by my relationship with Him? Or do I just want Him to kind of be my bud? We're going to hang out together. I I pray that we can recognize, like, man, we're going to have to sacrifice to be one of his disciples. And I hope that we're all on board for that. And if you're not, come talk to me. I will tell you that it's not troublesome. It's not burdensome. If you sacrifice, if you die to yourself, it's not going to be easy, but there are lots of people right here in the room that can tell you it's worth it. And you probably won't regret it later. And so that is our first half of the first chapter. Just take a glimpse into 14 verses in in Ephesians. And the next week we're going to talk about uh, the way that Paul prayed for people. It's convicting. I hope it convicts our heart. And then we're going to talk about the supremacy of Christ. Because that's kind of how he wraps up the the first chapter. But all of those things are going to help us identify these two big questions. Who am I and what is the path forward? Amen? Amen. Guys, that is all I have for you. And with that, uh, Josh Tabor is going to do our communion. So come on up, Josh.